last understanding of America begins, or so it seems to us, with the realization that this nation is young yet, that she is still new and unfinished, that even now, America is man's greatest adventure in time and space. The University of North Carolina presents American Adventure, a study of man in the new world, his values and his characteristics, who he is, what he believes, what he lives by. American Adventure is produced on a grant and aid from the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, made possible by the Educational Television and Radio Center. Written by John Ely, directed by John Clayton, today's program presents Appointment at Ford's. I knew Mr. Lincoln well. My name is Hill Lehman. I remember many days before he died, days in Springfield and in Washington. I remember his words and their inflections and his quiet face. I remember his death. I would not tell you about his death except that there was beauty to it, an attitude of destiny, or so it seems to me. At any rate, I believe there was more to his death than some say, though I must admit it is also a mystery. I remember the night of April 13th. That was 24 hours before Lincoln was assassinated. He, his wife, and I were sitting in his office. Mary, I don't know whether I want to go to the theater tomorrow night or not. Why? All the people will be crowding around... Now that General Lee has surrendered, they seem to fancy me to be a hero. Well, you suggested that we invite General and Mrs. Grant to attend the theater with us. You picked the wrong theater, too, Mary. That's a poor play at Ford's. Now we're at Grover's. I know. But this is Laura Keene's last performance in Washington, and I want to see her. I wish the president could be relieved of his appointment, Mrs. Lincoln. The danger is great at this time. Hill, you hang on to every threat of some maniac who plans to do me harm, as if the threat comes from a rational giant. No, not at all, but... If Mrs. Lincoln is bound to go see a play tomorrow night, I suppose nothing on earth could change her mind, least of all me. What time is it, Hill? Uh, it's ten o'clock. In two more hours, it will be Good Friday. What? Good Friday, the day Jesus was crucified. Looks as if the church would call it Bad Friday. Yes. It was a terrible thing, all that pain, held up by driven spikes. I used to drive spikes, Hugh. Yes, I know you did. I can imagine what it would be like to have a Roman soldier drive spikes through my hands and feet. I don't like such subjects. No. But it was a good Friday when Jesus died, nonetheless. After the pain was over, it was better that way. And then there's Socrates. His death did as much to illustrate his strength as did his teachings. And both could have avoided death. Mr. Lincoln, will you please stop talking about death and dreams? Those two subjects you've discussed for the last two days. Well, both are rather important subjects, Mary. 
dreams are important subjects? Now, don't start crying down dreams. And do you believe in them, Mr. President? I can't say that I do. But I had one the other night that has haunted me ever since. Nonsense. After it occurred, the first time I opened the Bible, it was at the 28th chapter of Genesis. You know what that chapter is, Hill? No, I certainly do not. Well, it relates the wonderful dream Jacob had. I turned to other passages and seemed to encounter a dream or vision wherever I looked. Well, now, that is strange. Somehow the thing has got possession of me. And like Banquo's ghost, it will not down. Banquo? He was in Macbeth, Mary. He was assassinated. Uh, Hill, why don't you ask one of the servants to bring Mr. Lincoln some tea? Yes, I will. I don't, I don't want any tea, Mary. Well, you look so, so tired. If this play has distressed you, let's not go. What play? Oh, yes. No, it isn't the play. Of course we'll go. Well, what is it? The dream. I tell you, I cannot shake it off. Well, perhaps it would help you to tell us about it, Abe. No, it's my dream, Hill, and I will not part with well, it. If you're trying not to worry us, you've already done so. Mr. Lincoln, I cannot sleep unless I know that dream. Well, about ten days ago, I retired very late. I had been up waiting for important dispatches from the front. I could not have been long in bed when I fell into a slumber, for I was weary. I soon began to dream. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs as if a number of people were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. There the silence was broken by the pitiful sobbing, but the mourners were invisible. I went from room to room. No living person was in sight, but the same mournful sounds of distress met me as I passed along. It was light in all the rooms. Every object was familiar to me. But where were all the people who were grieving as if their hearts would break? I was puzzled and alarmed. Determined to find the cause of a state of things so mysterious and so shocking... I kept on until I arrived at the East Room, which I entered. There I met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people, some gazing mournfully upon the corpse whose face was covered, others weeping pitifully. Dead in the White House. The president. The president. He, was he was killed, killed. By, an by an assassin. I. I slept no more that night. This is. This is. I wish you hadn't told me. I'm glad I don't believe in dreams or I should be in terror. Well. It is only a dream, Mary. Let's say no more about it. And try to forget it. That night, one day before Lincoln was shot down, I walked the great empty rooms of the White House, unable to leave the building, looking for some meaning to what I feared might be a coming tragedy, and some way to avoid it. 
At last, I went up the stairs and down the hall to Lincoln's store to ask the guard if all was well. But to my amazement, there was no guard there. Ten minutes later, the guard appeared. A man named Parker. He was munching on a sandwich. Where have you been? Hello, Mr. Lehman. I thought you went home. Where have you been? I I didn't have any dinner, sir. I was hungry. You understand. No, I don't. Not at all. Not remotely. Um, Yes, sir. At long last, Parker, I have finally gotten the president to submit to some protection. But it is a thin chain we hold around him. And any one link that breaks... I understand, sir. Believe me, I'm sorry. Parker, I should dismiss you on the spot. Look, sir, I... I've never done anything like this before, I swear to you. All right, my friend. Never again desert the man asleep in there. No, sir. Never. Fate has a way of working her will through our failures. This nation needs the man in there. Yes, sir. I know, sir. I swear, sir. I believe you. Good night, Parker. Good night, sir. Good night. Next time, take care how you talk to me. Have another biscuit, Bob? No, sir. It was good of you to get up to breakfast with me. I hate to eat alone. Oh, I'm used to getting up early. One does in the Army, Father. <laughs> yes. How did you like the Army? I didn't care for it. No, it isn't a good way of life. Were you afraid? Yes, sir. Good. Good? Of course. Death is an enemy. He's a terrible, invisible hand. And when he announces that he is close by, the sensible man must must gather himself to face him. I think with some fear. Did you ever face death, Father? Hmm? Oh, a man shot at me once. Since you've been president? Yes. But don't tell Hill Lehman. I don't hell Hill those things. He gets nervous. <laughs> yes, sir. But one night when I was riding alone, a man put a bullet through my hat. And then some people got excited about my trip to Richmond. Now, it's true I had no business going to Richmond while the war was on, but I wanted to look around for myself. Have there... Have there been any other attempts to assassinate you, Father? There have been threats. Many of them? I have received 80. 80? Others have been called to my attention. Some have been published in newspapers. Then you have faced death, as in a war. Every time you leave this building... Or even in this building, every minute. You're in a battle, in a sense. In a sense, that's true, but you've exaggerated. Father, you need protection. Now, look here, Bob. I can't go around being afraid to stick my head out the door. The president owes it to the people to be seen. This is a democracy. But the danger... I must learn to live with it. Can you imagine a coward as president of the United States? I don't want you to be a coward, sir, but... We've come from men who face danger every day, and they grew strong on it. Have you ever considered how it would be to stand on the edge of an unknown continent with an ocean at your back? They were brave men. Father, 
Isn't there a difference between being brave and foolhardy? Oh, yes. Which were the early pioneers, Bob? Why, I don't know, sir. I suppose they were foolhardy. And brave. Well, anyway, Bob, I've sent men into battle. And a man who sends other men to face death cannot back off from death himself and live with himself. Later in the day, Mr. Lincoln walked to the War Department offices accompanied by a guard, as was his custom. There, he talked to Secretary Stanton. Also, there was a Major Eckert, who later told me what was said. Stanton, do you know that Eckert here can break a poker over his arm? No. Why do you ask such a question? Well, Stanton, I have seen Eckert break five pokers over his arm, one after the other. And I'm thinking he would be the kind of man to go with me this evening to the theater. May I take him? Mr. President, I have asked you repeatedly to avoid showing yourself in public. I have asked, and I ask now for you to put aside this, this going to the theater and stay in your offices. There are men in this city who are here to kill you. Yes, I know. Now, now, look in this paper. President and Mrs. Lincoln will be accompanied by Lieutenant General and Mrs. Grant to the Ford Theater this evening for the showing of our American cousin. Now, now I... I know, I know, Stanton. Except for that newspaper article, I wouldn't go. But we shouldn't disappoint the public. It is this newspaper article that makes it impossible for you to go, Mr. President. You have announced the time and place for anybody who wants to do you harm. Now, Stanton, that's all very well. And that's why I want Eckert to go with me. A man that can break a poker over his arm. Mr. President. No. I have very important work for Eckert to do this evening. Well, I'll put it directly to Major Eckert, then. Sir? Major, you come along with me. You can do Stanton's work tomorrow. And Mrs. Lincoln and I want you with us. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. But, uh, the work that Secretary Stanton referred to is, uh pressing. It shouldn't be put off. Very well. I shall take Major Rathbone along, because I ought to have somebody to protect me, or Hill Lehman will try to resign again. But I would rather have you, Major Eckert, since I know you can break a poker over your arm. Mr. President. Come in, Hill. I was just talking to that woman about her husband's service pay. It, it hasn't come through, and she's in need of money to feed her children. So I told her she would have the money tomorrow. I see. Now then, what can I do for you? I have come to talk to you, Abe, about this theater performance this evening. Oh, I know that, Hill. The minute you came in with that scowl on your face, I knew I was guilty of poking my head out of doors. I suppose I'm going to be assassinated again today. The danger is great, Mr. President. Oh, now, Hill, you remind me of a story. Look, Abe, don't change the subject. There was, a, there was a fisherman back in Illinois who was known to be a terrible braggart, and the people caught on to him. So he purchased a set of scales in order to prove his stories about the weight of his fish. And this worked very well, until the people next door to him had a baby. So they borrowed the scales to weigh it. And they found that the newborn baby weighed 48 pounds. 
Abe, you have the darnest way of throwing a man completely off his balance with one of those fool stories. So it is with you, Hill. You exaggerate. But I know what scales you're using. I'm not exaggerating. The danger is great. And then you go for a walk or go to the theater unattended. I have never been to the theater unattended. No, the last time I believe you were accompanied by Charles Sumner and a foreign minister, neither of whom could defend himself against an able-bodied woman. <laughs> What's worrying you now, the dream? Uh, that among several things. Well, don't worry about that dream. I wouldn't, Mr. President, if I thought you were concerned about the danger. Do you think I'm not? I don't know what to think. I believe you realize that you may be struck down at any time, but you're going to go right on with your head poked up above the trenches. This dream you had is the first healthy sign of worry I've seen in you. By the way, Hill, speaking of dreams, do you remember that poem Byron wrote about them? Uh, what? Yes, I used to know it by heart. Let me see if I can remember it for you. Oh, Abe, for the Lord's sake. Now, now, listen, listen. Uh, sleep hath its own world. A boundary between the things misnamed death and existence. Sleep hath its own world and a wide realm of wild reality. And dreams in their development have breath and tears and tortures and the touch of joy. They leave a weight upon our waking thoughts... They take a weight from off our waking toils. They do divide our being. I think Byron called that poem The Dream. All right, Abe. I'll ask one favor and then I'll leave. You ask anything you want, Hill, but I'm going to the theater tonight. That isn't that. All right, what is it? I want to have somebody else take your message to Richmond. I want to go to the theater with you. No, I need you to go to Richmond. Mr. President, I have two good pistols on me right now and a bowie knife. I've carried them ever since I first knew of the danger to your life. I can use them. You may need me. Now, now if you'll just send somebody else no, to Richmond... No, I, I think I'll get one of the guards to go with me tonight. All right, then. Go alone. You're the only man in the country strong enough to steer a level course. The only man who can keep Sumner and Wade and Thad Stevens from grinding the South into a section of white and Negro slaves. But go on. If you die, the whole course of history will change. Millions of people will live poorer lives. But go. Send me to Richmond. Then make a pretense of protection. Prove whatever it is you're trying to prove. Go on to the theater. Go alone. Hill, you ought to run for Congress. You are a persuasive man. I can see too many things adding up, Abe. That's all. That dream started all this. I should have kept it to myself. You kept too many things to yourself, I expect. However, I think you should go to Richmond. Yeah, all right. Would it help you to know that I had another dream last night? A good dream? About the mirror? No, no, that wasn't a dream. That was real. I remember now. That was back in Springfield. I looked in a mirror and I saw two images of myself. One death-like, pale. But this dream last night was more pleasant. What was it? I was on a vessel I couldn't clearly see. Moving toward an invisible shore. An indescribable vessel. Moving toward an invisible shore. I take it as a sign that good times are on the way. I had the same dream before Sumter, Bull Run, Gettysburg, Stone River, Vicksburg, Wilmington, all those other victories. It's a strange dream. So I feel better about it all today. And you must too, Hill. Good news is on the way. Who's going to the theater with you and General Grant this evening? 
General and Mrs. Grant aren't going. What? No, I think Mrs. Grant is still angry with Mary. At any rate, they aren't going, so I've asked Major Rathbone and his fiancée to accompany us. I'm very worried about all this, Abe. Well, don't get me worried, or I'll put in a poor appearance. Good news is on the way, Hill. That's the only attitude... Crook? Yes, Mr. Lehman? Who's on duty tonight? Parker, sir, same as last night. He's to go to the theater? Yes, sir. Is the president all right, Mr. Lehman? Why do you ask? Well, he seemed to be feeling well enough when I walked over to the war department with him this morning. He said he was happy as he'd ever been in his life. Said he planned to go abroad when he finished being president, then go back to Springfield and enter law, maybe buy a farm on the Sagamon River. Yes. Seemed to have not a care in the world, but when he past some drunks on the street. He said, Crook, there are men in this town who intend to kill me, and I don't doubt but what they'll do it. He said that? I said, I hope you're mistaking, sir. Mr. Crook, I want you to go with the president tonight. I don't want Parker to go with him. I can't go. Why not? Look, if you have plans, you must set them aside. But, but I can't go. I asked Mr. Lincoln if I could, and he said he wouldn't have his guards working day and night, too. Then he said goodbye. Goodbye? Always before, he said good afternoon or good morning, Crook. But today, he said goodbye. Why? I don't know, Mr. Lehman, but it struck me as strange. Yes. No sense to be made of it. So Park will have to go with him tonight. I'm not happy about that. I checked into Parker today. There's reason to believe he applied as a White House guard in order to avoid Army service. Such men cannot be trusted. No, sir. But I talked to him. I talked to him last night in no uncertain terms. I'm sure he'll stand his post this evening, at least. You'd best be going to Richmond, sir. It's growing late. I know it is, and I've done all I can do. If only Mr. Lincoln were a bit less insistent on proving to himself that he can face death as readily as a soldier in his army. Sir? Yes. Well, I'll leave now, Crook. There's nothing more I can do. I was not in Washington on the night Lincoln went to the play, but there are many who have told us what happened, and I will tell you. How Lincoln rode in a carriage from the White House to the theater and pushed his way through the crowd, not knowing but that at any moment a gun might fire and silence everything. There was applause when he and his wife and Major Rathbone and his fiancée took their seats in the box that overlooked the stage. You take your place here in the hall, Parker. All right, Major Rathbone. And if anybody opens that door at the end of the corridor, or enters the corridor, you're to challenge him. You understand? Sure, but nobody's coming in here. Nobody is to come into this corridor. Nor to come near this door to the president's box. Are you armed? Yes. All right. I'll close the door to the president's box. But, but Major, I, I can't see. Can't see what? Why, the play. Parker, you're not here to watch the play, but to guard the president. had been a hole drilled through the door of the president's box. But Parker didn't see it. The doors to the corridor in the president's box wouldn't lock. But Parker didn't notice. There were other signs of an evil intent, but Parker was trying to listen to the play. And when he found that he could not do that from his place in the corridor, he left his post. He walked down the corridor 
away from the president and went through the corridor door and walked down into the audience in the balcony and found himself a seat. And then at intermission, he went out and had a drink. I cannot tell you how it feels to tell this about a man who had a duty, a strong duty, this American, this guard who had as his responsibility the protection of the one man in this country whose every word and action could change a chapter in this nation's history. He went out and had a drink. Then Booth came up the steps to the balcony. Booth, an actor with a great, clear voice. Booth, a man who had played the towering characters in Shakespeare's plays. This little man came up the stairs, opened the corridor door, and closed it. And then without a sound, he walked down the corridor to the door of the President of the United States and knelt down and peered in at Lincoln and watched him and waited, waited. Until at last he threw open the door and stood beside the President and fired the shot. One of the most fatal shots in the history of the world. I said there was a beauty to Lincoln's death. And so there is, at least to me. Oh, I know full well that some will look on it as a sequence of imprudent actions, nothing more. Perhaps it is more than that to me because I know that Lincoln had a sense of the mystic. And the dream to Lincoln was a warning, as was his double vision in Springfield when he looked into the mirror. So he interpreted them to be. Only with that understanding can one appreciate his strength and bravery and his willingness to play his part in the vast romantic tragedy of mankind. Looking back, I remember the words he quoted to me on more than one occasion. Prophetic words from Shakespeare's Macbeth. Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. Treason has done his worst. Nor steel, nor poison, malice domestic, foreign levy. Nothing can touch him further. Sleep well, Mr. Lincoln. And may all your dreams be pleasant on that indescribable vessel which moves rapidly toward the invisible shore. American Adventure is written by John Ely, directed by John Clayton, and is produced by the Communication Center of the University of North Carolina, Earl Wynn Director. These programs are produced on a grant and aid from the National Association of Educational Broadcasters, made possible by the Educational Radio and Television Center. Charles Curalt was Hill Liman. 
John Ely was Abraham Lincoln. American Adventure is produced and recorded in the studios of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. <laughs>